If you don't have a Bible, please raise your hand and the ushers will come forth and bring you a Bible. Today we're going to be in Revelation chapter 5. And now with the last time we saw the worship that was due the Father. We saw the uh, Apostle John come into the throne room of heaven and the, you know, the throne and who was sitting on the throne. And today in chapter 5 we're going to see the worship of the Son, Jesus Christ, and why we worship him. So, verse 1. It says, And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll, written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. So I wept much, because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. So we see the one on the throne, chapter 4, is God the Father, and he has this sealed scroll. Now, I have to explain to you a little bit of background, and the background will help to understand the rest of the scripture. As a matter of fact, if you don't do proper exegesis in the beginning of Revelation, as we get through the middle and later chapters, it's not going to make any sense. Okay, so the scroll. In those days, they didn't have codified, collated books like we do. They had these long scrolls. They had uh, some of them like a, a paper precursor, and there was a sheet that could, be, that could go for 35 to 40 feet long. And they would write on one side of the sheet, flip it over, and then write on the other side, all the way down, fill up the sheet. And then they would take the edge of the paper, like a lampshade, and roll it all the way up into this big scroll. Now, to keep the thing from, you know, unrolling like a lampshade, they would have these seals, be it wax, be it clay, and while it was still soft, they would put it on the edge of the paper, that last part of the paper, where it met the rest of the scroll, and they would kind of close it up. And then they would take a signet ring, if it was an official document, an important document, or some type of insignia, and press it into the wax. And basically that said that only authorized people were allowed to open this document under penalty of death. Okay, again, depending on who, what type of document, legal document, government document, etc. So, Father's sitting in, in his throne, and he's got the scroll in his hand, and somebody needs to open up that scroll. What is the importance of it? If we, as we go through the book, we understand that this apparently is the title deed to all of creation. Now, let me explain what that means. God created you know, the universe, everything that we see and, and look and look through in a, in a telescope or a microscope, it all was created by God. He put man and woman on the earth to be fruitful and multiply and to subjugate and dominate the creation. God knew how smart we would be, how interested we would be, and how curious like little children. So he made various galaxies and stars and planets. And it's really beautiful if you ever look out with a, with a telescope. He knew he would try to go and leave the earth and look around. So that's what he made for all of us. And it was just simple things that we had to observe, and we didn't. We rebelled against God, our federal head parents. We could say, well, it wasn't me, but believe me, if it got up to you or me, we would have done it. Okay, so uh, Adam and Eve rebelled, sinned against God, and they forfeited the creation. The deed that was given to them was forfeited. And the one they sold themselves to into slavery, it was forfeited to him, and that's Satan. So now Satan has pretty much everything at his disposal. As a matter of fact, when Jesus comes along, God in the flesh, he meets up with Satan, 
uh, out in the wilderness, and Satan says to him, he shows him the kingdoms of the earth. Don't know exactly how he did it, but he said to Jesus, see all this stuff, all these kingdoms, all this stuff, it's all mine, and I can give it to you. All you have to do is bow down and worship me. Now, Satan is a liar, but in this case, he actually was right. It was in his authority, the world, to give to Jesus, and Jesus is like, no thanks, I'm going to do it my way. I'm not worshiping you. Worship God alone. So, it obviously, it didn't work. Now, Jesus has the opportunity, okay, to die for our sins, to redeem. It's a buyback program, to take it back, okay, because it was forfeited. And you have to understand a little bit of the Old Testament to understand what this means. Leviticus 25, it's a very long chapter in the Old Testament. It has the rules of redemption of slaves and property. Now, follow me. If you lost your property, you had, you know, through indebtedness or whatever, you couldn't pay for it. Uh, and, you, and you forfeited your property, you could eventually buy it back. There was a time period. There were certain prescriptions that had to be followed for you to get that property back. As far as slavery goes, it's not the slavery that we understand in our culture. It wasn't a color thing. It was strictly economical. If um, the DeBrito family uh, owned land and, and the DeProsimos owned land, and somehow my grandfather got in debt to the DeBrito family, and it becomes generational by the time it comes to me. Now I owe a lot of money to the DeBritos, and I can't pay for it. I would actually sell myself into sort of an indentured servitude, and I would work for the DeBritos until I could pay it off. Now, in Leviticus 25, what it shows is that there was a year of jubilee. Every 50 years, uh, there was this year of jubilee, and what was really cool was God didn't want a class system. He didn't want a caste system. He didn't want his people enslaving each other and having the rich always be rich and the poor always be poor. So he set up the law so that every 50 years, a lot of that, you know, you, the DeProsimos are so in debt, it helps us to get out from under that debt. And there's redemption involved there. Now, so you have slaves, property, or indentured servitude and property, and also wives in a sense. Now follow me. In the book of Ruth, you had Ruth, whose husband died, and she had no way to carry on the family name. So what happened was, through what's called liveratical marriage, and again, that's in the Old Testament, uh, a near kinsman redeemer, the Goel, uh, uh, Boaz, if you remember that story, a great love story. He's able to redeem her, in a sense, and marry her, and to carry on that family name. So that's what you have going on here. Now, three qualities that had to be met. Number one, the person, I come in, I'm like, yes, I want to redeem. I want to buy that property back. Uh, I want to do a redemption uh, situation here. Number one, you had to be a near of kin. You had to be closely related to the victim, so to speak, or the person who lost it. And number two, you had to be able and qualified. You couldn't just show up on the scene and say, I want that. You had to have ability to be able to buy that back. And number three, you had to be willing. Check this out. Jesus is our near of kin. You see, Jesus, as, as God and lofty and glorious, uh, became man, fully God and fully man. He became flesh and dwelt among us. So he became our near kin in a sense. So that's one uh, way that Jesus can be, can be our, our redeemer. And number two, Jesus was able and qualified. <laughs> He's God incarnate. Talk about applying for a job. What are your qualifications? God. <laughs> you got the job, right? <laughs> you can't argue with that. So Jesus was qualified, God incarnate, and he paid the price with his own blood. And number three, he was willing. If Jesus wasn't willing, we would be in a lot of trouble right now, now wouldn't we? What? Become flesh and dwell amongst them? They're savages down there. They're going to tear me apart. Well, I love them. I'm going to do it. So he was willing. And 
again, let me just get through this and then we'll kind of jet through the rest of the passages here. If you think about it, we fit a lot of these characteristics that I spoke about. Number one, we are slaves. We've all sold ourselves into the slave market of sin, right? If Adam and Eve didn't screw it up, me and my wife would have, or you would have, or your spouse. So we're all slaves of sin. I mean, even if we don't do it overtly, Jesus calls us on the carpet and says, even if you think about it, you're committing that sin in your heart. So we're slaves of sin. Number two, we are, in a sense, wives. We are the bride of Christ. Collectively, uh, the Bible says that Jesus will eventually present us glorious and spotless to the Father as the perfect wife. And number three, you have the whole issue with the creation. Romans 8.22 or 8.21 through 23. I just want to read those few verses. This is interesting. It says, because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption. We're in decay. Read about tectonic activity. Read about the magnetic fields. Read about all the, the high and lofty scientific issues. There's a lot of problems with the universe. There's a lot of problems with the earth. Okay? There's a lot of problems with the sun. Eventually, if we lived long enough, the sun would burn out, wouldn't it? Nothing lasts forever. So, from the bondage of corruption or decay into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. And not only they, but we also, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, for the redemption of our body. Paul says that we will, will be changed in a twinkling of an eye. We won't all die, but we will all be changed in a twinkling of an eye when the Lord comes for us. Another thing that uh, was interesting is that when Jesus rode into Jerusalem and presented himself as the Messiah, Everybody cried, Hosanna, Hosanna, and they put the, the palm branches down, and Jesus rode over them, save, Lord, save now. And the religious leaders were angry. They were mad because they didn't accept Jesus as the Messiah, and they said, rebuke those people. That's not for you. That's for our great, glorious Messiah. And Jesus says, I tell you the truth, if I asked them to be quiet, even the rocks would cry out. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong, but I'm going to take a stab at this. I believe that if the people were silenced, I believe the creation would cry out. Because it, it recognized Jesus as their redeemer also. So we all get redeemed by Jesus. Pretty good stuff. In a nutshell, Jesus is redeeming not only sinners, but the fallen creation. He's taking it all back. Verse 2 and 3. So you have this strong angel's challenge. And, and he's crying out to everyone in creation, Who is worthy to take the scroll from the Father? I bet you could have heard a pin drop. Nobody stepped up to say me. If I was there, I wouldn't have said anything. I would have hoped somebody else would have stepped forward. And the Apostle John has the same attitude towards that. The angels weren't worthy. The archangels weren't worthy. The elders weren't worthy. John wasn't worthy. Nobody in heaven, it says, or on earth or under the earth. They can't even look at it, the Bible said. They weren't even worthy to look at the scroll that the Father was holding. But Jesus is worthy. This is just another brick in the foundation of Christ's deity. When you get through the book of Revelation, there's no way, no way in your mind after studying this book that you could say, I don't think that Jesus was God. I think he just was a good man and a prophet. As we get through the book of Revelation, remember Revelation, apocalypsis, where we get the word apocalypse from. It's the unveiling of Jesus. It's really the true understanding of who Jesus Christ is and his deity. Verse 4. So you see the Apostle John's reaction. He starts to sob. He said, I wept much. Or... I sobbed convulsively. You could make that application. Because it appears that God's plan to redeem mankind is ground to a halt. Now, 
John's crying. <laughs> you know, men don't cry. Listen, let's talk about John a little bit. This guy is not a weakling. He's a fisherman. He worked with his hands. He, was, he rose to the challenge of being a disciple. And John was at the cross during the crucifixion when all the other disciples took off and fled. Jesus says to John, behold your mother. He says to his, Mary, he says, behold your son. Take her into your house and take care of her from now on. So John was not a coward. Uh, John also, history tells us, that suffered a lot of persecution from the Roman government while on the island of Patmos, and they didn't kill him. Couldn't kill this guy. He lived to tell the tale. So John was not a coward. He's crying because he realizes the gravity of the situation. See, if nobody opens the scroll, then there's no end to the evil in this world, perpetuated by Satan onto his subjects for thousands of years. I would have cried too. <laughs> I mean, probably John was excited, but at the same time he was fearful, uh, you know, going into the situation, being in the bridge room, in the throne room of God. And we should groan and pray for the redemption of the entire creation. I had um, somebody from the church say to me, you know, I've been praying a lot for Jesus to come back. Is that selfish of me? I'm like, no. The Bible tells us to pray for a time where we don't have to bite our nails waiting for the election and seeing, is this guy going to be a good guy or a bad guy? Is he going to take us, our country in the right direction or the wrong direction? We pray for the Lord to come back and to be our ruler. We, he, we, we don't accept any king but Jesus. He'll be the righteous ruler. The laws will be righteous. You know, everything will be fair. We'll never have to say, oh, no, fair. It'll always be fair. Verse 5. But one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Then he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Here's the consolation. Somebody is found worthy to loose the seals and open the scroll. A few descriptors here. This is the lion of the tribe of Judah, going way back to the Old Testament, the first book of the Bible, Genesis 49. It speaks about the prophecy of Jesus as the lion of the tribe of Judah. It, it represents him as royal and kingly. Two, he's the root of David. Isaiah 11 and Isaiah 53 also speak about Jesus as the root, coming out of dry ground, arid, barren, uh, just a bad situation. But here comes Jesus, a root out of dry ground. Jesus the Messiah is from the line of David, but he's the root. He's also the source. Matthew 22:41. you can kind of check it out a little bit later. There's a few verses there. There's a little mind teaser going on. Jesus is trying to explain to the religious leaders that the Messiah, who they've been looking for, is just a little bit more than a good man, just a little bit more than a conqueror, and I say that facetiously. And he says to the religious leaders, and quoting Psalm 10, 110, excuse me, he says, now how does David, in the spirit, say the Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. How does, he, how does David call his great-great-great-great-great-great-grandson Lord? A term of homage, right? How does that happen? And how does he put his great-great-great-great-great-grandson Jesus, the Messiah, on the same platform as God himself? And they probably scratched their heads saying, you know, they couldn't answer his questions. 
And the word Lord is the same. In the Greek, it's ipen hakorias tokoriomu. It's the same word used for Jesus the Son and, uh, and God the Father. So he shows, he's trying to make them think about how the Messiah was much more than just a man. Now the elder tells the apostle John, here's Jesus as the lion, here's Jesus as the root, but John turns and sees a lamb as if it was slain. Hmm. Well, this is a picture of Jesus, of course, and I'll explain the descriptors, but a little bit of a humorous story. Uh, My wife and I led a couple to the Lord. They were friends of ours, and she was Jewish, but she didn't read a whole lot of the scripture. Um, And she, you know, through some time and, and the word, became a Christian. But she didn't understand a whole lot about it yet. And I remember we went to a concert, and it was a Christian concert or a church, and there was a Christian group there. And he kept, the guy kept singing about the lamb, and we're all standing and clapping and stuff. And she looked a little confused, and she elbows me, and she goes, Psst, who's the lamb? <laughs> so I said, it's Jesus. I'll explain it to you later. But the lamb, right? The Greek word for lamb used here is, can actually be used as a little pet lamb. A lamb is a picture of innocence, really sinlessness in the spiritual sense, And also a lamb, if you're familiar with your Old Testament history, is a picture of uh, sacrificial. Because they used the lambs, the innocent, perfect, spotless lambs, to slaughter them to cover for the sins of the people. So Jesus fulfills that. Now, the question is, what is John seeing? Is this completely symbolic? Somehow the risen Christ still bears the marks of the cross. A few things are going on here. John the Baptist, when he saw Jesus... And I'm sure it was in the Spirit, right? Because John the Baptist was filled with the Spirit. When he saw Jesus coming towards him when he was baptizing in the Jordan, John John the Baptist says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He understood who Jesus was. But also, when Jesus was resurrected and perfected, he appears to Thomas. Remember doubting Thomas? I will not believe until I could put my finger in his wounds and put it in his side. So Jesus comes and allows Thomas to put the finger through the wounds and the side. Now, does that mean that Jesus was resurrected and still had a pleurisy or stigma or some type of medical condition? No. It shows that because of Jesus' love for us, he still in some way bears the marks of the cross to show his love for us. So this is what's going on here. Now, John is not only seeing evidence of this awful crucifixion, but he also sees horns and eyes. Now, this is hard to decipher, but similar to the living creatures in chapter 4. Remember we talked about the living creatures with eyes all around, outside and inside. And we're like, the word I said was, if you take a first glance at it, you may say grotesque. But obviously, that's not the picture that the scriptures are ty- trying to uh, convey here. Something that we need to meditate on and pray about. Because it's, it's, it's conveying a spiritual truth, the horns and the eyes. And I'm going to go through that. What is that truth? Well, I'm going to decipher it based on precedence, because if you really know your Old Testament and your New Testament, it helps to understand the book of Revelation. If your first exposure to the Bible is just reading Revelation, you probably have a hard time, because it pulls from all 65 other books and and wraps it up real nice. So what do we have here? Number one, the horns. Well, especially in the book of Daniel, the horns were a picture of power and dominion. Number two, the eyes. The eyes were a picture of illumination, wisdom, and omniscience. And the spirits. We keep seeing this. There's a repetitive theme of the Holy Spirit. And this is always a package deal with the Son. What I find amazing is in John chapter 20, Jesus breathes on them, and he says, receive the Holy Spirit. That's pretty amazing that he could do that. 
If I breathe on you, I might be receiving a breath mint. But if Jesus breathes on you, you'll be receiving the Holy Spirit. That's pretty fascinating. The, the Son always comes with the Holy Spirit. And number seven. We see, we're going to see a lot of sevens through this. Because this is God's number of completion. Seven, seven, seven. And the number of man, the number of the beast is six. He's incomplete. He's a cheap, a cheap imitation. He's a counterfeit. He can never achieve that number of perfection. The word midst is used twice here. Jesus is in the midst, it says, of the throne, and he's in the midst of the elders and of the four living creatures. It's used twice. Jesus is center stage. If you could picture like when you throw a rock into a puddle or a bullseye, and you see there's the center, there's the mark, the perfect mark, and then the concentric circles that come around on the outside. Jesus is the center. It's all about him. And sometimes I think as Christians we forget that. We get so involved with our lives, we get so involved with so many things that we forget what our purpose is. We lose our way. We lose our purpose. We start complaining and grumbling. That shows a lack of appreciation. We start looking for attention. It shows a self-centeredness and a pride. Jesus is in the center of, the, of all of it. And we have to understand that as we go through this book, we say, okay, now I get it. Jesus is in the center, and I really need to be ministering to him, not always pulling from him. To, to, you know, elevate me. So far, the descriptors for Jesus is, are of a prevailer, an overcomer, and a victor. And he asks the same of us. And Jesus is always our example. With forgiveness. Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. Well, Jesus asks us to forgive because he forgave one of the worst injustices and crimes in human history. Forgive them, Father. Jesus is our example in lifestyle. He taught us how to live. He's even, the Bible says, an example for us in suffering. So that when we suffer, when we go out on the mission field and we're rejected, when we're rejected in our own neighborhoods, we see that Jesus set the model for trials and suffering. He knows what we're going through because he's been through it. Um, prayer, he taught us how to pray, and victory. That's why we study his word, so we can emulate him and learn from him, learn from the master. And in verse 7, Jesus takes the scroll. Why? The title deed to all creation. Well, why doesn't the Father open the seals? Jesus had a big hand in creation. John chapter 1, verse 3, or starting with 2, he says, He, Jesus, was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, meaning Jesus. And without him, nothing was made that was made. Right? It's like a, a, a check there. Any, nothing was made unless it went through Jesus. So Jesus now gets to take this scroll, and uh, he has the authority to take back his creation and alter it and judge it prior to redeeming it completely. Verse 8. Now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you are slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood. Out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. So Jesus takes the scroll and sort of a, I don't know, big party celebration breaks out with song of Christ's achievements. What I find fascinating, too, is um, it says in this particular verse, they sang a new song. However, prior to that, it says, they said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. And we'll see, furthermore, worthy is the Lamb, blessing and honor each Saying is more of a saying, but in this particular instance, it's a song. There's really a great cause for rejoicing because of Jesus' achievements and what he's about to do. 
So they prostrate, prostrate themselves before Jesus. They worship him and the redeemed sing this new song based on the situation. Now, this is why, again, let's go back to the last chapter. Who are the 24 elders? Well, if we say they're in order of angels, well, why would the angels sing a song of the redeemed? Jesus didn't shed his blood to redeem the angels. He, rede- he shed his blood to redeem, to redeem mankind. So again, when you start doing the proper hermeneutics in the beginning, as we go through Revelation, it makes sense. And you don't say, wait a minute, the last chapter said something that seems to be in conflict with this. Okay? The elders have bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And the question is, what prayers? All the prayers? All the prayers anyone ever prayed from the beginning of mankind? A lot of speculation about this. Well, I'm thinking certainly the prayers for the Lord's return, the prayer especially in the the Our Father or the Lord's Prayer or the Disciples' Prayer, whatever you want to call it, the one particular line that says, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, some pray, Our Father who art in heaven, and, and pray it repetitiously, repetition. I have to say, ten Our Fathers. But the question is, every line, every verse in that prayer has meaning. It would be really a shame to continue to pray that repetitiously and not know what it means. When you say, Lord, thy, your kingdom come, your will be done, including in my life, in earth as it is in heaven. What does that mean? Are we really ready for that when we pray that? Be careful what you ask for because you just might get it. I'm ready. There's nothing. Listen, I love to see. Uh, great events in my son's life as he grows. There's a lot of things I'd be interested in seeing, but none of them trump the Lord coming back, setting the record straight, and um, living under his rule. There is nothing that I could think of that I want more than the Lord to come back and have his will done on the earth. It's all good. Here God is delighted with the odor. It says the the odor of the prayers of the saints. Now, in the Old Testament, again, A lot of precedents here. In the Old Testament, in the temple, there was specifically an area for incense to be offered. It was a continual incense that was to be offered before the Lord. And it was a certain prescription or recipe of uh, spices and stuff that were put together that would be burned. And God said, you will only use this to burn, otherwise I reject it. So there's a certain thing that God wanted to be put in there and would be pleasing to him, that that odor for him uh, that he liked. Kind of reminds me of, um, you know, maybe if you walk into a room that uh, is like a nice incense burning or, a, I don't know, smell of flowers or what does it for me is when my wife bakes. I could come home, doesn't matter what's going on. I walk in the house and, whoa, I'm overpowered by the smell of chocolate chip cookies. You know, I just have a smile on my face and I'm like, well, when are they going to be done? <laughs> right? That's an odor that's pleasing to me. Well, prayer is translated into something that the Lord, I could just picture him, when people pray, when his people call upon his name and they, they just love him and they have that intercession and, and it, just, it reaches the Lord and he goes, oh, that's so beautiful. He inhabits the praises of his people. So this is something that really does it for God. Every time you pray, it's a blessing to the Lord. Now, they also had a harp. Um, you don't see a whole lot of harps in there, but I guess that's the impression. If you ever see those, those paintings where uh, the saints are up there or the angels with wings on a cloud with the bling, bling, you know, a harp. So this is the harp here. That's what they used. Uh, but taking apart the song, you see that this is a victory song. One commentator said, you better memorize this, this song because we're going to be singing it for all of eternity to the Lord. Let's break it apart. Number one, you are worthy. Well, the entire Bible speaks of worthiness of the Messiah, the Son of God, even prior to his coming. 
Two, you were slain and have redeemed us by your blood. This is the purchase price for our redemption. Again, it looks back to the Old Testament sacrifices, and, and there's a lot of prescriptions in the Old Testament. In other words, uh, there was something called the ransom money. There was different ways that you could be redeemed or things could be redeemed, like I spoke about in the beginning. And out of every tribe, tongue, and nation, all types of people, Jesus said while he was on the earth, if I am lifted up, I will draw all peoples unto me. No exceptions. He made us all. We're really one race. That's a misnomer saying the different races. We're all one race. We're all God's people. We all come from the same, really, family. Uh, the question is, will we be redeemed back to him? Will he accept, we accept his sacrifice? Or will we continue to rebel against him? And then a few other things here. He says, he has made us kings and priests. Priests were always close to God. In the Old Testament, they were mediators. And kings conquered and ruled. And he, speak, he spoke about us reigning on earth, which is a picture of the millennial kingdom. We believe in Calvary Chapel in a millennial reign. We literally believe in a thousand-year period where the Lord will come back and he will rule from Jerusalem and he'll depose all the wicked rulers and he will show us what, it, what it's like to live under a reign of a perfect government. And that's a theocracy in Jesus Christ. Verse 11. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. So here now the angels, you've got to follow the, you know, the, the progression here, the angels join in with the elders and the living creatures with one accord to worship Christ. Now the word 10,000 is interesting. Why would they use that word? In the Greek, the word for 10,000 is muriatus, which actually in the English comes into myriad. So muriatus can mean 10,000, which was really the highest number expressed by the Greek vocabulary, or it can mean an indefinite number. So now let's take that number and do some math, okay, bring you back a few years. 10,000 times 10,000 is what? 100 million. So even on the smaller level, we're looking at a, a heavenly host of 100 million. There's a lot going on there. So even as humans, we realize that we're not it, and that's on the smaller level. This could be just an innumerable, innumerable host that's going on there. And maybe you know, God gave the Apostle John the insight to almost, in a sense, be able to count them or to get a, an idea, ballpark, how many there were. But taking apart the song in verse 12, there's a sevenfold blessing here. Again, the num number seven. You can see this. You might read it and not realize that there's a seven in there. Uh, to receive power, riches, wisdom, strength, honor, glory, and blessing. Now, it starts with uh, Jesus is worthy and then continues with the focus less on what we've received in the last song, verse 9 and 10, but what Christ deserves or what he possesses for who he is. Verse 13, And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, and such are in the sea, and all that are in them, I heard saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. Now the Father's included in that. But what do we see here? We see that if you look at the one prior, Jesus was fully God and came to the earth being fully man. Do you realize how if we had, remember, as God, he already had these things. Power, riches, wisdom, strength, honor, glory, and blessing. Do you realize that when he came to the earth, he divested himself of these? He willingly gave these up. 
Going from fully God to be worshipped by the angels and all the living creatures, now to be born in a manger, poor, under humble means, and having people just abuse you your whole life. Wow. Talk about a humbling experience. Most of us, would, we wouldn't be able to take it. I can't take this mission anymore. Being used to people telling you how great you are and have people worship you and all this kind of stuff, and then go to not having this anymore. So Jesus, it's not that we give him power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing, but he's always had it. We, we say that he deserves that. Again, he divested himself of these things when he became man. Verse 14. Then the four living creatures said, Amen, and the 24 elders fell down and worshipped him who lives forever and ever. A lot of worship going on here. Worship in words and worship in actions. And everything that the Bible, everything that's supposed to happen here should be um, really emulated from what's going on in heaven. Worship. What about us? Words and actions. Sometimes we worship with our lips, but we don't worship with our actions. And let me tell you something. The best way to win someone to Christ is for both of these to happen. You know, our our actions have to follow our words. And again, it's something we should start practicing because we'll be doing it for eternity. Now, we have to get the picture here that Jesus is God. It can't be stated more emphatically. Number one, a few points here. Jesus had the audacity to approach the Father's throne, to look at the scroll, and to take it. And we see that he's going to start breaking the seals. That should tell us something right right there. When the Bible said no man was worthy, but Jesus came, I'll take that. Start breaking the seals. Two, in the end, all the heavenly hosts that initially worshipped the Father now worship the Son. Do you realize, especially in the Old Testament, those of you who are students of the Old Testament, that worship was only prescribed for God the Father? And if you try to worship anything else but God, he would really become incensed about that. As a matter of fact... um, Isaiah 43, 44, all throughout the Isaiah 40 chapters, God says, I am the only God. I am the only Savior. I am the only one that that worship should be bestowed upon. He really got incensed when the children of Israel started worshiping other things besides God the Father. So now he's giving away his worship to the Son. That can only mean one thing. Jesus is deity, right? Three, the words in the song are meant for deity. We wouldn't sing that to each other. (laughs) We certainly wouldn't do that. And we see that, again, we can't come away from Revelation without anything else but the deity of Christ. So the question is, where do you stand regarding the events that unfold in God's calendar? Because the next event is the Lord Jesus Christ, 1 Thessalonians 4, says he will descend from heaven with a shout, uh, with, with the trumpet of God and with the voice of an archangel, and he will, he will call his people home. The dead in Christ will rise up, and those of us who will remain We'll be caught up with them, and thus we'll be together and meet the Lord in the clouds of the air, and we shall always be with him. Comfort one another with these words. That's the next event. Where do you stand in your understanding of Jesus Christ? Have you accepted him as your Lord and Savior? Or do you just, ah, yeah, I've heard of the Jesus thing, and oh, yeah, I've heard of it. Because the Bible says that even the demons believe and they tremble, but they're going to be damned for eternity. Are you a spectator in this, or are you part of God's plan? And only you can answer that. No matter your denomination, your particular church, your spiritual advisor, the Bible screams relationship. Jesus is God. Jesus is to be worshipped. We start that relationship by worshipping him. The Bible says there will be a day where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And the way I see it and the way the Bible sees us, we can do it now out of adoration, willingly. 
The, the olive branch has already been given. We can come and take the olive branch. We can willingly come to the cross, willingly come to, the, to Christ, repent of our sins, and adore him voluntarily. Or later on, when it's too late, it could be done out of obligation. I have friends that, you know, I, I've, I've talked to them about the Lord, the Bible, the rapture, you know, the, the book, the Left Behind series. People have read that and, you know, Christians are called home and all the Christians are gone. What's going on? I've actually had people that I know are friends saying, you know, you make a good case. It really makes a lot of sense, but I'm not ready. I'll wait until after the rapture and then you're really gone and then I'll worship him. But we're going to see later that that time is going to be a brutal time of suffering and hardship. So, it's your choice. Worship him now, or worship him out of obligation later. Let's pray.